Hello and welcome to the Jewishes podcast. I am so excited for today's episode, which is talking all about plants and herbalism and Judaism. For full transparency, this intro bit is recorded after recording the entirety of the podcast, which is why it may sound a bit different, as for some very strange reason, only the audio files for the intro were corrupted, so I'm re-recording now. There's nothing really special about the intro other than I wanted to share how excited I am and how I love doing podcast versions as we can interject with bits of knowledge and random tidbits that don't always make it into the written blog version. Some people have also asked regarding how you can support the podcast outside of the Patreon, which is a monthly subscription. Now, the Patreon is a great way because you get extra content, but there are other ways. For example, we have a Buy Me a Coffee, which is a one-time donation. It's available in our link tree or L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Jewiches, and that's a one-time donation, but also listening to the podcast, following the podcast, rating the podcast, leaving reviews. All of these are wonderfully supportive and uh, very, very important for, the, for uh, supporting Thank you so much for all your interest, and I cannot wait for you to hear this episode. Lavender for sleep, rosemary for clarity, rose for love. Those are the basics, according to the internet. But there is so much more to herbalism and the use of herbs, especially in the Jewish tradition. And I said especially when I was writing... And I should have written particularly or as well as to highlight that to some people that this is something that is outlandish or shocking or surprising. And I wanted to highlight how it does exist within Judaism, not say that Judaism has it more so than some other tradition, which might have been the unintended effect. The modern terminology of Judaism is defined by Wikipedia as the study of pharmacognosy and the use of medicinal plants, which are the basis of traditional medicine. But for this blog post, we're going to narrow down the focus to three specific areas, ritual, magical, and medicinal plants historically and traditionally used by Jews. It's important to note that the Jewish diaspora is vast, and as Jews moved and settled, different herbs were available to them. This means that er the herbalism of one group would look different from the herbalism of another. This is meant to be a simple overview. There are many Jewish herbalism traditions that I will not cover, and it will not be all-encompassing. The traditions of Jews and herbs and plants are vast and diverse, far more intricate than a single podcast episode or blog post could adequately adequately investigate in detail. This is meant to serve as a light overview and jumping off point for further research in a few different directions on the topic of Jews, herbs, and herbalism. Separating ritual, magical, and medicinal is a difficult task. These categories are blurred, overlapping, and interwoven, even before the introduction of herbs. As history continued, as new herbs were introduced, as Jews created and uncreated rituals and magic, plants were faithfully by our side allies and tools to whatever end. The modern idea of spirituality and medicine being separate entities is just that, a modern conception. For most of history, illness, disease, and by extension, the healing of said maladies, were all part of a spiritual ecosystem. Demons and evil entities were often believed to be the cause of illness, and to cure an illness wasn't merely stopping a series of physical symptoms, it was ridding the patient of whatever evil plagued them. 
Plants that were physically protective could also serve as magically protective. In turn, dealing them ritually important, meaning that a single plant could fall within all three categories at once. The use of plants in ritual spans to before the exodus from Egypt, when the Israelites were told to paint blood over their doorposts to protect them from the angel of death claiming the firstborns. It was the plant hyssop that they were instructed to use. Its protective uses are still lauded to this day. To quote, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the two, two doorposts. None of you shall go outside your door of your house until morning. Exodus 12.22 When offerings are burnt for, burnt for Hashem, hyssop and cedar are required. To quote, the priests shall order two live pure birds, cedar wood, crimson stuff, and hyssop to be brought for the one to be purified. Leviticus 14.4. The purification rituals include hyssop once again, to quote, Another party who is pure shall take hyssop, dip it in water, and sprinkle on the tent and on all the vessels and people who were there, or on the one who, was, who touched the bones, or the person who was killed or died naturally, or the grave. Numbers 19.18. Fragrant incense, ketoret, burned at the altar was created of 11 fragrant herbs identified by Maimonides as anica, storax, frankincense, musk, cassia, spikenard, saffron, costas, cinnamon, agarwood, with the addition of salt of Sodom and Jordanian amber. Another two ingredients, vetchlai and caper wine, were used in preparation of tziporin, anica spice. There was also a special herb referred to simply as male ashan, makes smoke rise, that will produce a pillar of smoke that rose straight up rather than spread out. The identity of the herb was a secret that was closely guarded by the members of the Avitnus family, who made the incense based on the tradition of their ancestors. The anointing oil of the Kohanim, high priests, is made of olive oil, myrrh, cinnamon, and other spices, as described in the Torah. And you take for yourselves spices of the finest sort, a pure myrrh, 500 shekel weights, a fragrant cinnamon, half of it 250 shekel weights, a fragrant cane, 250 shekel weights, Shemot 3023. The use of plants in ritual has not waned or lessened in the diaspora, though they are hardly identified by these names. Once pointed out, people can often point to numerous ritualistic uses of herbs or plants. One such easily identifiable experience is Havdalah, the closing ceremony of Shabbat, the Sabbath. It is believed in very few words that during Shabbat, one receives extra spiritual heights. At Havdalah, this Shabbat soul departs and your soul is left devastated. To soothe and comfort oneself, one inhales the scent of fragrant spices, herbs, or fruits. The most popular herbs used for this is cloves. According to, according to OU Kosher, in regards to Ashkenazi tradition, Mishnah Berurah uh, 2971 writes that for Havdalah, no matter which spice one smells, one recites the bracha of Bore Mene Basamim. Ordinarily, each type of spice is its own separate bracha. Spices that grow from the ground are bore isve basamim. Spices that grow on a tree are bore atse basamim. Spices that are edible fruit are hanosein reach tov beros. Still, since many are not familiar with these brachas and to avoid confusion, it was instituted that, instituted that at Havdalah, one only recites bore mene basamim, which is the most general bracha and will cover every spice. However, 
L'Echadchila, it is best to use a spice whose bracha is b'reh mene basamim. According to many opinions, the bracha on cloves is b'reh mene basamim, and therefore it is the preferred spice. One may also mix spices together with cloves. However, they also acknowledge that Sephardic communities may follow a different tradition that commands the specific blessings as per the blend of spices. The example given is that for cinnamon, which comes from trees, the blessing of b'reh atzei basamim would be required. Outside of cloves, cinnamon, cardamom, myrtle, myrrh, star anise, orange peel, etrog, mint, rose, and jasmine are all popular among many, many others. These fragrant spice blends are often kept in highly decorated, decorated boxes. In Ashkenazi households, many of these besamim spice boxes take on the appearance of castles or turrets. For some communities, it's a tradition to save the myrtle from Sukkot, which is our next ritualistic use of plants that many Jews can easily identify. During Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a term that I've never come across in Jewish communities and only in academia and non-Jewish secular spaces to describe it, we use four sacred plants known as Arba Minim, or four kinds. The Lulav is a palm branch, which is joined with myrtle and willow branches, and an etrog, which is a citron fruit. The four species are held and waved during various parts of the synagogue service on Sukkot. According to Chabad, a palm branch, lulav, two willows, aravot, and a minimum of three myrtles, hadassim, and one citron, etrog, are the correct quantities for each. The bundle of palm, myrtle, and willow is often referred to collectively as a lulav on its own, due to the prominence of the palm. During the various services, the custom is to wave the alba minim in all six directions, south, north, east, up, down, and west. The myrtle is frequently kept for including the besamim for Havdalah, while the etchog can be turned into jam, liquor, or decorations, as well as a myriad of other uses like keeping the peel to include as well in your besamim. Customs vary by community on the methodology and the purpose of disposal of the arba minim. Some people burn them, uh, some people save them for a special date, some people use them for uh, ritualistic cleaning. There are many, many, many traditions. While not explicitly used in the same rituals as the etrog and lulav, during Sukkot it is traditional to eat the seven sacred species. To quote Deuteronomy 8.8, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. The great Kabbalist Rabbi Isaac Luria gave associations to each of the special species. Wheat, barley, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, and dates. His works link these plants to the seven lower sefirot or divine emanations. Wheat is chesed, barley, gevura, grapes, tiferet, pomegranates, chod, olives, yesod, dates, machut. These sacred plants appear heavily within Jewish ritual, with grape juice and wine being central components of Shabbat, Havdalah, and most major holidays, wheat and barley being used for the creation of challah and matzot, pomegranate appearing on the tables as a preferred fruit for holiday celebration, as well as eaten ritually for its connection to fertility, and so on and so forth. It's very often eaten as the first fruit to celebrate the new year. Now, these are just a few examples of ritual uses of, usages of plants that are well known to a vast majority of Jews, but there are other uses that have experienced marginalization in recent years, leaving certain members of the community without introduction to their purpose and benefit. Alternatively, their experiences with them have been greatly demystified, shrouded not in their spiritual power and propensity for healing and protection, but in that, in, but in that of mundanity. Garlic, for example, is a powerful spiritual and medicinal protectant. 
Jews so heavily consumed garlic that we were dubbed garlic eaters. Anti-Semitic images of us in Europe featured Jews holding bags of money and bulbs of garlic, as depicted in uh, an image you can find on my website from Worms. In Spain, the use of garlic was a means of identifying one as a Jewish during the Inquisition. Just as heretics and Jews have always fled from Christian doctrine, so have they always fled from Christian customs, the priest wrote. They never lose the Jewish habit of eating the garbage of onions and garlic fried in oil. This quote is attributed to Andrew Bernaldez, who was the chaplain to the Archbishop of Seville in Spain during the Inquisition, where he's calling fried garlic and onions, frying them in oil, garbage, which is truly blasphemous in my perspective. But it shows this ideal of it being a Jewish custom to eat garlic. And I also think it's an interesting note to mention that it's, they say, oil as opposed to lard, pig fat, which was the custom for many non-Jews and non-Muslims in the region. I guess it was for Christians in the region to identify themselves as non as not Jewish, not Muslim, because they were using pork and pig fat. But Jews across the diaspora did not just consume garlic for its delicious flavor and health benefits, which have been extensively studied, but because it was well known to be a wonderfully protective substance. Garlic bulbs were hung in doorways, planted near the entrance to homes, cloves tucked into pockets, added to Blusica small protection satchels, placed beneath pillowcases in doorways and windowsills, used to ward off evil and all those who might seek to harm someone. Garlic was also an aphrodisiac, heavily consumed on Shabbat, which was the prime time to engage in intimacy. In the modern day, however, Someone might not know the reason they grew up eating garlic so much, especially for Shabbat. The reason that might be that their mother believed in its ritualistic and magical properties, or that their parent learned it from their grandparent, or their parent, or their great-grandparent before them. Before we move on, I'm going to go grab a couple sips of water, and you are going to listen to an ad so we can keep making this podcast. We'll be right back. Rue, as well, was another highly sought-after and lauded herb for its magic horn protective properties, as well as for its flavor. To quote, as a woman from Bulgaria recalled, when we were sick, my mother used to perform Livianos of lead, and then she used to boil mint, a little rue, a little lemon, all mixed up. She would boil it like a tea, strain it, and give it to us to drink for stomach ache. There we didn't go too much to the doctor as we do here. Things of the house, they did things to us to us at home. All the medicines were were prepared for different pains. Everything helped. To quote, Buddha, yes. When the eye hurt, I remember my grandmother. They, I remember from my grandmother. They washed the ruda, they mashed it well, they put it with a little sugar in a thin rag, and it was placed on the eye. It was good. It is good even today. I want to preface the entirety of this podcast, really, and particularly this next portion, This is in no way medical advice. I am not, do not attempt this. I am in no way conveying anything other than historical documentation and discussion. This is not medical advice, and I do not advise that you attempt this in any way, shape, or form. Rue was also used as an abortifacient, as well as to ease menstrual symptoms. Now, another portion of Rue was that it was highly, 
highly protective. Rue was planted outside of the home and in courtyards. Sprigs were placed in the beds of laboring and newly delivered parents, in the cradles of infants pinned to the curtains of the bed, and even to the new parent's hair. Is placed beneath pillows behind the ear and tucked into the clothing of an infant going for circumcision. It could also be layered with numerous other protective practices, symbols, and items like garlic, blue beads, and more. One may grow up drinking rue tea, tending to rue gardens, or even placing a sprig of rue on their own child's bed, not necessarily knowing why they take part in such a tradition or practice. And I also want to highlight that, of course, many people are well aware of these traditions. The use of herbs in ritual was extensive, and as Jews moved through the diaspora, new herbs were acquired. For example, one popular methodology of Jewish ritual included writing upon the leaves of various plants, fig, myrtle, olive, and sage. In in a love magic ritual from late antiquity, a new bride and groom were instructed to write in honey upon a leaf of sage. To quote, to increase love between bri- groom and bride when the bride comes from the chuppah after the conclusion of the blessing, write, b- write the name of both of them with honey up- upon two leaves of sage and give to eat the leaf upon which it is written the man's name to the man and the name of the woman to the woman. I also want to make note of the fact that the variety of sage would have most likely been common garden sage or another variety. However, it would not have been white sage or salvia apiana, which is indigenous to the west coast of what is called the Americas, and would not have been available to Jews at this time, nor in the practice of Jews at this period. For centuries, Jews were known as spice traders, herbalists, and healers, among other things, with some sources citing that Jews played a significant role in the spice trade as early as the biblical times of Solomon, roughly uh, 10th century BC. While Christian Europeans faced a complex relationship with spices, Jews maintained a consistent allyship with plants native to the diaspora, as well as others. London Jews of the 17th century had not given up the practice of trading. After the Inquisition, conversos, or crypto-Jews, they would often pass themselves off as Portuguese as a means of hiding their Jewishness. To quote, Doge and Senate in August 1609, many Portuguese merchants in this city have been discovered to be living secretly as Jews. Some have already left and others have had a little grace to allow them to wind up their business in spite of the laws that are very severe on this subject. To quote, There is nonetheless enough to encourage the belief that these two Portuguese were indeed crypto-Jews, and Mr. Samuel, in the case of Pinto, cites the carrying of his body overseas for burial as a a seemingly strong evidence. Now, we're in the 1600s here, and this would have been... The indication here is that they believe that he was going to be buried in Eres Israel, as far as I read through the commentary. To quote, from 1621, there is no trace of known Jewish merchants in the port books until 1637, when we find the first mention of Carvajal exporting buckram to Coruna, woolens, ointment, and whetstones to Rouen, uh, re-exporting Normandy camens to St. Lucar and Malaga and gum Arabic to Bilbao. Items from the list of imports and exports by Jews of London in the 17th century, including items, uh, so this is a fascinating list. I really wanted to include it. I really wanted to include it in the original blog posts, and I'm very excited to talk about it here because I couldn't. I didn't really feel I had the space to give a lot more extra context. I found the incredible list of imports and exports 
from Jewish merchants in 17th century London. And mind you, many of these were uh, conversos, but also Sephardic Jews. And we see here not just right practices of use for Jews, but also things that Jews had access to and created access to. So this is a list and I went through it and there were many, many things that I just deleted from the list because they weren't in relation to herbalism, medicine, or magic. So this is only items that were imported or exported by Jews from the port of London that are related to medicine or magic. And I alphabetized it. Almonds, amber, aniseed, balsam, bezoar stone, a, a concretion taken from the stomach of an animal and used as an anti antidote or counterpoison, cardamom, cinnamon, clover seeds, cloves, cochineal, cochineal, cortex, which is a medicinal bark, great bugle. And I love this one because great bugle, question mark, probably an herb, probably the herb was not written by me. That was the direct line that I found. Green ginger, ground ginger, gum elenum, elemi gum traganth, tragacanth, incense, Jesuit's bark, cinchona, licorice, manna, a juice from certain species of ash, used as purgative, mustard seeds, nutmegs, oil, flour, orange flower water, safflower, safflowers, dried petals, which make a red dye, salt, Spanish tobacco, amber, apothecary ware, and beeswax. So they literally include, they've got this whole incredible list of what in the 1600s Jews were bringing in and out of London. And I thought that was just a fascinating thing to, to, to find out about. When not known for trading, Jews were well known for their place in the medicinal field. Both men and women alike were well versed in the power of medicine, with Gentiles often seeking out Jewish doctors and physicians when ill. One of the most famous of physicians was that of Maimonides, or Moses ben Maimon, which, or the Rambam, who I have a complicated relationship with. However, in an effort to protect Jews, there were often prohibitions against treating Gentiles and having Gentiles treat Jews. It's important to note that these prohibitions existed due to the bigotry and violence against Jews not because of bigotry and violence against non-Jews. It is interesting to, to quote, it is interesting to note that the rabbi's suspicious attitude towards non-Jewish physicians was not based on their potential incompetence or lack of access to effective therapies, but rather their personal animosity towards Jews. Moreover, medical interactions have the potential to help other religions thrive or convert Jews to other faiths. So, were it not for the violence and forced conversions that Jews faced, perhaps there would be more sharing of knowledge between communities. Jews saying it's not safe for you to treat non-Jews and it's not safe for, non for Jews to be treated by non-Jews because they might harm you, hurt you, or forcibly convert you to Christianity is something that is, uh, or forcibly convert you to whatever other religion, is something that it provides a a much deeper perspective than one might think from the overarching sentence. Jewish medical texts were also highly popular, with segulot verrefuot remedy books serving a particular purpose. Diatra Cohen and Adam Siegel, authors of Ashkenazi Herbalism, make note to include that while many of said manuscripts were attributed, many were not, like that of Seferat Toladot, which is a manuscript of midwifery, it indica which indicates that it was written by a woman. To quote, 
women have always been healers. They were the unlicensed, unlicensed doctors and anatomists of Western history. They were abortionists, nurses, and counselors. They were pharmacists cultivating healing herbs and exchanging secrets of their uses. They were midwives traveling from home to home and village to village. For centuries, women were doctors without degrees, barred from books and lectures, learning from each other and passing on experience from neighbor to neighbor and mother to daughter. They were called wise women by people, witches or charlatans by the authorities. Women, however, mentioned in Talmudic texts as purveyors of medicine are, however, mentioned in Talmudic texts as purveyors of medicinal knowledge. To quote, women play a central role in the rabbinic therapies as they did in ancient medicine more broadly. One woman who is quoted frequently is the foster mother of Abaye, who is quoted upon to share many of her remedies, who's called upon to share many of her remedies, cures, and medicines. It is mentioned that the Baal Shem Tov was the son of a midwife, and while her knowledge is often spurned, contemporary sources have begun to investigate how her knowledge may have been foundational to his education. However, women were not always respected in their respective communities, nor did men necessarily concern themselves with the illnesses that women devoted their lives to preventing. To quote, the women did it. It was the business of the women. It was not the hachamim, rabbis, learned men. They didn't occupy themselves with such things. To quote, these women knew about everything. They used to do it for the evil eye. They did it for the nazar, casting the evil eye, for espanto, for many other things. And they were always respected. They in turn did such things. They were called mujeres santas, saintly women. Mujeres bendichas, blessed women, and amas de lío, souls from God, saintly people. There were numerous roles and titles for various healers. Ashkenazi herbalism teaches us that in Eastern European communities, feldshares were considered folk physicians by their communities, and Ashkenazi Jews affectionately refer to their community feldshares as Rof Reif, which is Hebrew for doctor. Much like physicians, they also relied heavily on Segelot Verefuot. In 1911, Preuss Preuss in Germany published Bibish Talmudische Medizin, or Biblical Talmudic Medicine. This compendium of Talmudic and Biblical cures, remedies, and medicines covered everything from erectile dysfunction to the common cold. These stories of Jewish women are drawn from multiple backgrounds, from Sephardic and Ashkenazi women, and there are so many stories that I haven't covered here and the way in which communities interacted and dealt with their own healers and medicine dispensers and creators and doctors. And we're going to move on to herbs and plants that have been classically used in Jewish communities. While we already discussed things like uh, cloves, garlic, and rue, there are, many herb, there are many plants that have appeared in Jewish communities. And here are just a few this is not an all-encompassing list. Here are just a few that are commonly found within Jewish texts. Almond, anise, asparagus, barley, bay laurel, beets, belladonna, bitter vetch, black cumin, black pepper, black seed, blueberries, calamus, cardamom, chervil, chicory, cinnamon, cloves, comfrey, cucumbers, cumin, dates, devil's snare, elderberry, etrog, European white water lily, frankincense, garlic, genshin, ginger, grapes, hay, hound's tongue, hyssop, leeks, lentils, lettuce, mallow, mandrake, marjoram, milt, mint, mustard, myrrh, myrtle, nettles, nutmeg, olive, olive leaf, olive oil, onion, pomegranate, parsley, purslane, 
radishes, raspberries, raspberry leaf, red clover, rosemary, rue, saffron, sage, spearmint, spinach, St. John's wort, strawberry, tobacco, uva, ursi, valerian, vervain, wheat, and wormwood. Now, again, this is not an all-encompassing list, right? But this is rather a wide variety of examples of plants used by Jews throughout the diaspora. And I think that that's one of the things that I love the most about learning about the history of Jewish plant usage, because we see the evolution and we get to see the story of Jews and the story of specific groups of Jews written in the way that we interact with the plants around us, because we get to watch uh, and see how we dealt with being in diaspora and thriving in diaspora. And I think that's something I am so appreciative of and have such utmost and utter respect for, is the thriving and living within diaspora. Now, the use of herbs as part of ritual, medicine, and magic have always existed within Judaism. Learning about Jewish herbalism and the relationship between Jews and plants is a vital part of reconnecting and reclaiming much of the Jewish magical practice that has been hidden beneath a shroud of secularism, mundanity, and propriety. I am on an ever-continual journey to continue that practice and that, that learning, and I am nowhere near the end of it. And there are so many incredible resources out there that I highly recommend you check out. And this is where we get to the end of the podcast, where I talk about citations and sourcing. Before I get there, I'd like to thank people for writing reviews. Reviews really do help the podcast quite a bit. Uh, If you haven't left a review on Apple Podcasts yet, just even a couple of words, it would mean a huge, a great deal to me. I would really appreciate it. I want to say thank you to Kenny G138. They're really sweet, kind comment that they left. on Apple Podcasts. I really do appreciate it. If you leave a rating on Spotify Podcasts, that's also extraordinarily helpful. Every download, subscribe, like, follow means the absolute world to me, and I'm quite honored that you choose to spend your time listening to me. On that note, I'm going to start talking about my sources. So I first cited Wikipedia for herbal medicine. Then we have uh, Maurice Wolf, Foreign Trade of London Jews in the 17th Century from the Jewish Historical Society of London, published in 1970. We have JSTOR, uh, that's available via JSTOR. We have OU Kosher. Um, many people specifically use cloves or besamim. We have the incense and besamim Havdalah candle from Chabad.com. My Jewish Learning from Lulav and Etrog, Chabad.org, the Lulav and Etrog, the Four Kinds. Um, Aish Jews, Six Little Known Garlic and Jews, Six Little Known Facts, Ritual Medical Lore of Sephardi Women, Sweetening the Spirits, Healing the Sick, which is a book that I have uh, cited many, many times and have found a great deal of use in, Jewish Love Magic by Ortal Pazar, Magical and Religious Literature of Late Antiquity, ReformJudaism.org, Spice Trade uh, Dash Jews, Medicine in the Talmud, Natural and Supernatural Therapies Between Magic and Science by Jason Zion Mokhtarian, Ashkenazi Herbalism, Rediscovering the Herbal Traditions of Eastern European Jews, Chabad.org, uh, Why Koteret Incense in the Temple, Witches, Midwives, and Nurses, A History of Women Healers, Barbara Ehrenreich, and Deirdre English. Thank you all so much for listening. I can't wait to publish another episode. I will see you all then.